Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Wendy Fisher is one of the all-time greats. She is a two-time World Extreme skiing champion, was on the U.S. ski team, and she's an Olympian. She filmed with Warren Miller and Matchstick Productions, and she played a huge role in showing the world what women could do in big mountain arenas. I spoke to Wendy about all of this and more, including a few fantastic Shane McConkie and Seth Morrison anecdotes, in our latest Blister Speaker Series at Western Colorado University, and I think that there are dozens of important takeaways from Wendy's experience and stories that we all can benefit from. One more thing, we opened the evening at Western by showing a short film of Wendy tearing it up in the mountains, and you can head over to the show notes of this episode on the Blister website to see that footage and the Solomon TV episode that you'll hear Wendy reference in our conversation. Plus, you should go watch the short film just to see some of the most gorgeous and powerful turns ever to be put down on big lines. So check out that film on our site and please enjoy this conversation with the great Wendy Fisher. Wendy, we're happy to have you here and would love to have you come up. Thank you. Thanks, you guys, for coming. I want to just kind of go through this trajectory of yours because it's a very interesting one. Um, so let's start with where you grew up. Uh, I grew up in Lake Tahoe and uh, was part of the Squaw Valley ski team. Had two brothers to chase around and then got into ski racing um, in my time in Tahoe. So how old were you when you started ski racing? Ski race, I mean, you know, that's relative. I probably was in my first race at five, you know, fun race. And then seven, it got more serious. But yeah, I mean, I was skiing since I was two and it was our, our family sport, just like a lot of families here in Crested Butte. But this wasn't yet. Your, the ski racing stuff in a way takes on a more traditional looking path a little bit later. But mm -hmm. my understanding is you were not just this, you weren't just around banging gates at an early age. You were still exploring the whole mountain um, and kind of just doing both. Yes, I mean, this day and age when you're a ski racer, it definitely takes on a different form earlier. Um, you know, that's in all sports these days, right? Everyone's trying to get their kids to be the best in the world at seven. But uh, yeah, I mean, at Squaw Valley and we raced, but we also played a lot. I mean, we just chased each other around the mountain and it was more of um, the focus was just skiing. And it happened that every now and then we'd go around gates. You have a moment, uh, a big moment, when you end up going to Burke Ski Academy. Mm -hmm. but. What is a standout moment of yours, say, prior to Burke? Um, just skiing before Burke yeah. and what? Um, I just remembered it was, I had no choice. It was, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I didn't even question not skiing. My older brother skied. My parents moved us from Davis, California to Lake Tahoe so we could ski. It was just ingrained in me that we were a skiing family and uh, there wasn't many other things you know, we didn't have hockey. I just didn't know of other things. So we just went and skied all the time. Apparently my parents told me that I loved it and 
they would come and find me skiing in the rain when everybody else was already in the lodge. And, um, you know, skiing has taken on a lot of forms. Uh, I know you heard me talk a long time or a few weeks ago, but, um, you know, my brother who got us into skiing, he passed away skiing. And I think that took on a whole nother entity for me in terms of what my drive was as a skier. Maybe it had something to do with him, um, being that he got us to become a ski family and then uh, it didn't work out so well for him. And then uh, just, I just remember the freedom and the joy and it, we just played. Every day was a play day when we're on the mountain. And I think that's what captured the love of the sport for me. And then I started to get good at ski racing and it, I don't remember thinking much about it either. It was just something that was, I would show up and go to races and I started winning them. I don't remember, I reflect back and I'm like, I don't remember learning to race. So in that sense, Burke's kind of a big deal, but that felt like just a natural next step for you? I'm one of those people who doesn't pay attention to what the big deal is. Um, I had no idea that Burke was a big deal. Growing up ski racing, um, when you get to a higher level or you get competitive, skiing's not a school sport. So when you're going to a public school, the, the principal for the high school, I had an older brother, my parents already told them that if he missed more than seven days in a semester, he's gonna flunk or take him down a grade level. So my parents had to figure out an alternative if we wanted to keep skiing. And so my brother found Burke. And, um, and, my, and so then when it came to my turn, you know, basically it was a no brainer. I just knew if I was gonna continue skiing, I had to leave. And I didn't know Burke was a top ski school. I knew nothing about it other than my brother went there and that was where I ended up. And I never missed Tahoe. I mean, you would think, so Burke is in Vermont for those of you who don't know it the Northeast Kingdom in the middle of nowhere, sheer rice, sometimes you get rain. And I never missed Squaw. I never missed Tahoe once. I was in a new element. I loved, we worked out very hard. I loved working out. I loved challenging myself as a ski racer. I definitely went in, I knew I was going into my freshman year is I was one of six girls. And I knew my parents told me that the class I was going into, every girl was the top girl from their division. So I knew I was definitely entering something competitive, but it didn't scare me. I mean, I still, I wasn't dreaming to be a top level racer. I was just going through the motions. Huh. You just were happy to be skiing. You're still skiing, you're still racing and training and you yeah. were into that. Yeah, I was into it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember when I was younger and even at Burke, we always go through these times of, okay, you guys, you need to write your goals out. And I knew I had to write, make the Olympics because you're kind of an idiot if you don't. You're in this platform and that's what the coaches want you to see. But I honestly never even cared at that point. I eventually did care, but when I was younger, I just skied to ski. <laughs> so I, I just followed my heart. We've talked a little bit about the actual school part mm -hmm. and turns out seems like the racing came a lot easier or more naturally for you than some of the educational structures and systems that you we were you know some years ago it was kind of there was more of a there's one way to do things mm -hmm. and that didn't necessarily line up so well with with you um, right. do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah so I struggled in school and um and I knew I was a standout student of who always had to be pulled out to the side and take extra tests. And 
I had untimed tests, so I had untimed SATs. And, but um, it was just apparent that I wasn't a natural student. And um, it got to me, and I did not enjoy school. And so I really struggled with it. I remember even at Burke, um, I was like, I don't want to go to college. But if I'm going to go, uh, you know, I, I knew I would figure it out. I was a hard enough worker. I, know, I knew I would get through it. But athletics were different. Athletics, right from the get-go, people complimented how well I was doing. I was winning cross-country races when I ran. I was water skiing and picking up that really well and quick and snow skiing. So everybody patted me on the back when it came to sports. But when it came to school, um, I was embarrassed and uh, pretty shy in the classroom and too afraid to speak up. So, you know, anything athletic, I just took it and ran. And that was my freedom. That was where I felt confident. Um, I felt good about myself. So that's pretty much why I probably got into sports so much. Do you think, and I, it seems to me that today, I don't, I'm not prepared to say that we've got kind of different learning types and different educational systems sort of mm -hmm. dialed right now, right. but I think it's better than it probably was some time ago. Do, do you think it would have made a pretty significant difference for you if there was less of a, everybody's got to learn this way, this is how mm -hmm. we instruct? Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think I was a different learning style student. And, um, you know, the public school system did not really help do me justice. Burke did, actually. And Burke, we didn't have grades. So it was awesome. And <laughs> so, you know, I went there. It was all about um, Burke. You had to earn your respect with the coaches and teachers just by trying hard. And if they saw that you were trying, you know, they're there to help you. We got into colleges, they write evaluations on what kind of student you are, what kind of kid you are, all across the board. And I mean, kids get into Ivy League schools from Burke without grades because those schools like uh, Williams and Bates and CU and DU and UVM, Middlebury, they know Burke now. It's been around for a while. We're going on, we're, I'm about to go to the 50th anniversary of the school in June. So these schools started to respect the process and what the teachers wrote. And I went, when I graduated, I actually, a classmate of mine who was super smart, she applied to Harvard, Bates, Williams, and she got in nothing because she didn't get good evaluations. They said she's smart, she knows she's smart, she doesn't work hard. So she had to go back and earn the respect of the teachers and the faculty to then go and get into a really good college. So um, for me, that it was the best environment because the teachers lived on campus. After class, I'd go up to teach right away and be like, can you meet with me again to explain this all over again? <laughs> because I'd kind of get stage fright in school and in the classroom. So it was definitely just the quite opposite of um, outside of school arena for me. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know how, just no one ever patted me on the back that I was a good student. So. Um, I just transitioned my life to try to find where I was rewarded. There's an interesting, I, I know this anecdote, which is really interesting the way that, you know, you were like, look, if there had been more encouragement, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps on the school side of things that may have been a bit different in terms of your own, how you felt about it, you know, and, and um, 
your own kind of confidence in mm -hmm. that, and you've drawn that parallel in your athletic career. But there's a funny thing where you had told me that after Burke, I think, mm -hmm. you found out years later that yeah. you, you know where I'm going yeah, with yeah, this story. Yeah. Tell uh -huh. me about this, because I think it's easy for us to look at you in hindsight in this remarkable career and what you've done and sort of put you in the like, oh, you're just a natural, everyone always just saw this talent and this um, work ethic and the like. That maybe right. wasn't true in every single case though. Right, so um, when I went to go to Burke, uh, Burke is in Vermont, like I said, and I'm from Lake Tahoe, the West Coast. And Burke, the faculty, the headmaster, they didn't really respect us West Coasters because we don't work as hard and we're a little more laid back. And so um, all the girls, uh, basically, I don't know if you guys have heard of Shane McConkey. So Shane McConkey went to Burke too. He's a year older. So he was from Squaw also. So we were the West Coast kids and everybody was from either East Coast Canada or New York or Vermont, Massachusetts. And um, so I was coming into a class of the top girls who were all from the East in different states. And I was a top girl from the West and the headmaster and the coaches told my parents that uh, probably they shouldn't send me to Burke. And if they did, I wasn't gonna last for more than two years because they didn't think I'd ever be strong enough. I mean, basically my legs were the size of my arms. I was a string bean, no muscle. And they just didn't think one, I was from the West Coast, that's a check against me. I was unusually skinny. And they already had all the top girls who they thought were gonna be the best for the school and I was counted out. So they told my parents this, but my parents didn't tell me for until after I quit my ski racing career. And the headmaster even told me it. And um, I, you know, and I just remember my parents told me that they didn't think I was gonna last more for more than two years and not to even send me there. I ended up making the US ski team my sophomore year. And I was one of two girls in my class to go on to the 92 Olympics. And you know, still, which we might get into kids, I mean, I have parents all the time who are like, oh, because you were good, your kids are gonna be good, or my kid this. I'm like, you never know. You can't count anyone out ever. Because here, supposedly the top academy in the country the coaches counted me out. Um, and if I knew that, I do question where my mental state would have been going into my racing career at Burke, um, knowing that people were doubting me in that way. So yeah, and so I just naturally worked hard and naturally started kicking some butt in, in the East Coast. It's a great lesson, I think, about the power of encouragement and the power of um, yeah. not encouraging. Mm -hmm. and we better be real careful on those yeah, fronts. Um, definitely. Let's talk about the U.S. ski team. That's an interesting chapter of your life. Um, you are at Burke for four years and then stick around mm -hmm. in the PG program, yeah. mm -hmm. which you've, that was a good time of life. Uh, yeah. as ski, train, that's about it. Yeah, your food, your meals are made, you just worked out, you know. All they expected out of you at Burke is just work hard, and that was easy for me. Hmm. Talk to me a bit about some of that as you think back about that, your years on the, the U.S. ski team. Mm -hmm. Highlights, biggest lessons learned? 
Um, highlights uh, for me being on the US ski team was just traveling the world. And I tell people, um, when I was younger, we had to do career reports. And I wrote two career reports on being a stewardess or a flight attendant, is what they call them now, because I just wanted to travel. That was what, I guess if I was going to have goals, um, my dream was just to travel. So when I started ski racing and I made the US ski team, I was like, this is, so in a way, kind of wanting to be a flight attendant to now I'm getting to travel the world. That was actually what I wanted to do in life. And so when I made the team, you know, I just loved traveling, loved um, the girls, half of the girls I was on the team with. Uh, we didn't all love each other and just, I don't know, I, I love new experiences. And so every day just I had to learn to travel on my own at a very young age, become really independent. Um, there's just so many highlights uh, back in the early years. And then definitely through the later part of my career was when things got um, complicated and uh, just more challenging. Talk a bit about that. I mean, you, I've heard you talk a bit about sort of the longer you're on the team, the sort of higher the expectations become. There can be a bit of an isolating effect yeah. to this. Well, the US ski team's funny. We, it's the US ski team, but it's a team full of individual athletes. So you travel together, you room together, you eat together, you, you know, it's, you're driving in the same vans together, unless you're Lindsey Vaughn, which back in our day, I mean, you know, Peekaboo Street was my era, Tommy Moe, if anybody knows about ski racing. Um, we didn't get the luxury to hire our own coaches and to branch off the way that they can do it now. And you definitely have to be the top and able to do that because you need to have the finances to get your own coach and to travel away from the ski team. Um, it's very, they make it very difficult. So you have to have, you, your coaches are the coaches that they pick. At Burke, if I didn't like the coaches, I could have gone to a new academy, you know, or a different ski club. When you're on the US ski team, you're stuck with those coaches and um, you're stuck with your team. So, Yes, at first there was a bunch of us younger girls traveling together and half of them were great friends, half of them, you know, whatever. I didn't need to interact with them. And then as you start climbing the ladder, I kept skiing well and going, you know, higher and higher and more people get kicked off the team or quit. And I, and as that started happening more and more and I realized some of my close friends were gonna get kicked off or leave, I remember feeling desperate internally going, oh my God, I hope she beats me today because I don't know what I'm gonna do when she leaves. Because now you're with, now it's business. And I didn't really understand that because I skied, my whole career was because I loved it. I loved working hard, I loved traveling. Um, I loved the challenge. And it was with the good group of people and then all of a sudden um, you were, you didn't have your posse or your, your friends and you have to figure out how to kind of be independent and think for yourself. And, um, and now you also have coaches who might not give you the pat on the back that elevated you before. And so towards the end, uh, it just became very challenging because it wasn't a very team-like environment anymore. You had, I think, a pretty important meeting with Kristen Ulmer. And when does that conversation happen in the midst of what you're describing right now? Yeah. Um, when you're finding this 
the U.S. ski team stuff to be pretty challenging and rather isolating. You have a conversation with Kristen, who I guess is telling you a bit of what she's got going on. Yeah, I remember um, I met Kristen Ulmer. She was at my house with a, a trainer who lived in my hometown with the U.S. ski team, was friends with her. So she came over and she started telling me about her her lifestyle and how she just goes and travels and skis and powder skis. And I was like, wow, um, <laughs> that sounds really intriguing. And um, it definitely got in my head. And then Shane McConkey was starting to branch off and do this stuff. And that was just something we grew up doing. I didn't, I didn't look at it as it was a career or something you could branch off to. Um, so, you know, I probably ski raced for a few more years, but towards the end, I started daydreaming about the days that I used to just ski at Squaw with my brothers, with my friends, and how much fun it used to be. And um, I don't want to say ski racing wasn't fun because I loved it, but the environment was no longer, um, it just didn't feel like it was my place anymore. And, that, and, and no disrespect for any of the teammates or anything because you need to have that mindset. And that is what weans out the people who are not 100% committed or, or maybe, it, I feel like there's three elements to be a top athlete, um, natural talent, hard work, and then what's in your head. And ultimately what's in your head kind of weans out everybody else eventually. So if you're not strong up, and I, and I reflect back and I look at my career and I regretted so much towards the end of my ski racing career, like why couldn't I get it together? Why couldn't I see what I can see now being away from the sport? But I don't think I could ever have changed my mental mentality. I just wasn't that fierce of a competitor to isolate other people away or to not be friendly or to not be a teammate. So once I realized that I could not hold my own in that environment, it was time for me to leave. So there's a segue here to, and it's, it's a really interesting story, but so there's this segue to big mountain skiing. Mm -hmm. And talk us through that piece of this then. How, how does yeah. this get going for you? Well, so kind of from afar, I was watching Shane and he was having so much fun being a goofball and getting into bump skiing and I'm like, bump skiing? Shane, what the hell are you doing? Like, <laughs> that is like against all um, alpine racers' <laughs> futures, yeah. bump skiing. But he was making a scene on the bump scene, and then he was getting a big mountain and filming. And so I'd show up at Squaw. I was still on the ski team. And I remember it was Christmas break, and Shane was home, and I ran into him. And I was like, hey, Shane, can I, can I go hang, follow you around today? And Scott Gaffney who he didn't really talk to me much, but I followed him and, <laughs> and Shane around and Shane, and I would just hang out with Scott and Scott was filming Shane doing all these hits. And I don't know, he was just having so much fun. And so that definitely got in my head. I eventually left the ski team. I moved back home to go to school at Sierra Nevada College. And, um, and I was there to race on their race team. And after a year, I'm realizing that I'm not trying to be an Olympian anymore. I'm not trying to be the best ski racer anymore. I just could barely get down a ski course. So I gave up my scholarship and I told my dad, I faxed him a letter. This is back in the faxing days. He worked in San Francisco. So I faxed my dad a letter and I said, I'm giving up my scholarship. I'm quitting school. And this is in December. 
and I'm hitting the road to ski one last winter because I'm never going to ski again, but I want to have fun before I hang up my skis. I'm going to find a place to get into mountain biking and, um, and go to school. And I put that same note, not as detailed, um, under my coach's door and I never saw him again. And I moved all my stuff out, packed up my car and went on a road trip and ended up here in Crested Butte. And um, the extreme comp back in 96 was a few weeks away, but I started free skiing and people were talking me into it. And they're like, oh, you should do this extreme comp. I'm like, no, no, I'm never gonna ski again. I'm just here for fun. And then it started to kind of get in my head and people started showing me the venue. And um, so I entered the contest and I, I had never seen one before. I knew nothing about it, but everybody showed me on the head wall for all you guys who know the venue or the ski resort, head wall was day one. And I was told that all the girls, when you're looking up at the venue, cross angle goalie, cross that whole area, and then would ski skiers right of angle goalie. I'm like, okay. So I warmed up there a little bit and then contest day comes. And I haven't watched a contest in a long time, but back a long time ago, hundreds of people at the base of Headwall, kegs, barbecue, chairs, like people just lounged out. And um, we get two runs. So I went where all the girls went and all the girls went there. Everybody skied beautiful, you know, it was nice. I think I was in second or third. Now I'm at the bottom and Shane was there. And I start watching, he's running later, so he's hanging out at the bottom. And so we're watching the guys come down. And I don't want to disrespect, because I know everyone skis different, and now there's new school way of skiing. But um, I came from a very, you know, trained, rigid background. And these guys that start skiing down, heading right to the skier's left of angle goalie, airing in, shooting out, just doing all this crazy stuff. And I'm with Shane. I'm like, oh my God, Shane, I'm a better skier than that guy. Can't I do that? He's like, yes. And then another guy would come down. I'm like, that guy sucks. Can't I do that? He said, yes. So we did that for like about five runs. And then he helped me pick out a line. He's like, all right, this is what you're going to do. And so all the girls went up for their second run. All the girls went back, skiers right of angle goalie. And I start skiing right down to the left um, rock edge. And everybody, when they started seeing where I was going, just started freaking out. And I remember skiing down going, oh my God, this is so cool. <laughs> and then I got to this air, to air into Angle Goalie, and I stopped, and this is back in the day when you could pause, and I paused, and I just took it all in, and I was just like, this is amazing. And I'll just add that I'm on 200 race, GS race skis with Derby Flex. So I'm, <laughs> I'm in like old school stuff. And um, I sent the air, and then I landed like just in enough space where my skis can straight shot out and then I did like three or four turns down to the finish and everyone surrounded me and I'm like we've never seen a girl do that that was amazing and I remember just thinking like okay this is I can do this you know and I still was on the path to never ski again but Shane just kept saying Wendy you need to go to the SIA show you need to promote yourself you need to keep doing this and I'm like nope Shane I'm never skiing again and then after the contest, I was here for a few more days and um, I ended up packing up my car, driving back out to Tahoe. I did the Squaw event, won it, did the Kirkwood event, won it, went to, Ve well, Vegas where the SIA show was. Um, Dina Star gave me some money to help me get to Alaska, flew up to Alaska, won the Worlds. 
And I never quit skiing. And I never quit skiing. Yeah. I, this idea of, you just had me thinking that like every time in life where you're like, oh, I'm not sure I can do this. If like Shane McConkey just walked no, out and was like, no, you got this, you know, like yeah. how, how we'd be all better by like 150%, I think. Totally. Um, so yeah. you, you got that experience. So. Right. And then again, it's the pat on the shoulder. I mean, from that moment on, from that run of everyone surrounding me, that was, that was growing up, right? I was getting good at ski racing. People would say something. I got good at water skiing and that was my other sport. I ran cross country and I won. So here I am, like suddenly my heart, like that moment, I was like, I'm home again. This is where I need to be. Like I'm with a, surrounded by a community of men and women and even the women, I must add, because I would left a community of women who I didn't feel that support. So now I'm in this free skiing world of everyone's just like, we want you to get better because this makes the sport better. And so all the guys, all the girls, we'd go to contests. Um, it just, it, that was, I realized that, that again, this is where I'm meant to be. And um, it was awesome feeling, like definitely. Cause when I left ski racing, it's like, man, I'm, well, I was like 23, 24. Um, I thought I was kind of old, but no. Now you look back, that's really young. But I just remember thinking to myself, I just trained my whole life up to this point, and now I'm done skiing. Like, what's my future? And nothing against ski school or like teaching skiing, but at that point, because I do teach skiing now, but that was not my next path. I wasn't meant to be a teacher yet. I didn't want to teach. I wasn't done skiing, even though I thought I was done. So that whole world of big mountain skiing blew up pretty much in that year of 96, 97. And then Mike Jakewit got us all together, Kent Kreitler, Shay McConkie, myself, Allison Gannett, a bunch of influencers, even though I was new to the whole free skiing thing, got us together to talk about a new magazine for kids. And that was Freeze Magazine. And I really think that magazine, I don't know if you guys remember Freeze Magazine, but that I think really opened the door up to young, kids now seeing a future in skiing that wasn't racing or freestyle. Talk to me a bit about the filming. You filmed with Warren Miller, you filmed with Matchstick, and you were one of very few women filming at that time, um, it seems, and you've got some interesting kind of stories and perspectives on that, I think. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I grew up working hard and definitely at Burke, uh, training hard, just no complaints. I mean, it, it was all sweat and hard work and you achieve things. So now I'm in this atmosphere and I was being the only girl asked to go travel with Matchstick with all these guys. And, and um, you know, I learned to just zip it. If I wanted to be with these guys, I just zipped it. I didn't whine, I didn't complain. I just tried to work hard so that they would invite me back. And I know if I'm gonna be a, a, thor, you know, a thorn in their side, they're not gonna want me to be a part of their, their crew. And I very much wanted to be that. So I just bucked up and I didn't complain. Um, I'd be terrified on a run, but I would just mentally have to pull myself together. Um, because I wanted to be asked back. You talked a minute ago about 
feeling supported. Mm -hmm. And did you feel that same amount of support when it came to the filming stuff? Or did that feel more like, I don't know, kind of a, a little bit more of a culture of like, why are you here right now? Or how, what was that dynamic like? No, those guys supported me 100%. Huh. Yeah. Um, I traveled with Matchstick for maybe like seven years, and it was definitely a highlight. I loved being one of the boys, and I was treated like one. I mean, I had to sleep in a shitty place just like all of them, and, and I just sucked it up. And we would be in the middle of nowhere in cabins with hardly any running water, and that is, you know, it, it, it was a family. So you were all in it together, and they definitely supported me, helped me pick out lines. Um, the hardest part was the pressure you put on yourself. I mean, with filming, you get one chance to do that line right. So the stress is almost making sure you have the line right, that you don't mess it up because you can't go up and do it again. So in a way, um, the intensity of big mountain skiing and filming was almost harder than ski racing. Um, ski racing, you go blue, red, blue, red, blue, red. You look ahead, you can see your path. Um, it's just about being dynamic, quick, strong. Uh, big mountain skiing, man, your life was on the line. And you had to make sure, and actually in some of those runs in the video, I'm actually lost. And it worked out in my benefit. I hit a bigger air than I would have planned. Um, I, was, I was a spontaneous skier, and definitely from my background as a ski racer, I was able to mess up and still pull it off because um, I, you know, I was good in my sport. But, um, yeah, no, all those years, it, I always felt like they wanted me there, that I was not a hindrance to them, uh, that I helped support, even though as a group of guys, I helped elevate their level or I wasn't holding them back by any means. I also have heard that you made um, Seth Morrison's shortlist yeah. <laughs> uh, at one point in time of people who he was willing to go film with, which yeah. might be actually the biggest accomplishment of everything we've just talked about so far in your career. It was, yeah. I, um, I was pulled into MSP's office one time and they said, uh, so Seth, you know, if anybody knows about Seth, he doesn't put up with any, he doesn't put up with whiners or people who can't make decisive decisions. He's out there to do his job, work hard, find gnarly lines that are death defying. And he doesn't want people who are just gonna bring down his mojo, I guess, you know? So uh, I came in and they're like, Wendy, Seth just said that he has a, a, only a few people that he will allow to film with him. And I'm, I was the only girl and one of the few people that made the list. So that was definitely a big accomplishment that I was worthy enough and, I, and easy enough to travel with. On the one hand, you were saying, even if it was among maybe a smaller group of folks, including like Seth Morrison, Shane McConkie, you were feeling supported at certain moments, mm -hmm. but there's also an element where Sometimes you were just walking through the door and you were like, I'm going to say yes, I'm going to go do this. I really, truly don't know what is about to go happen. But yeah. I, I haven't heard you express a lot of hesitation about any of these different steps or transitions in your life. No, I, I fully think with my heart. I don't, I don't think with my head. I don't let that interfere in my path. 
So if something comes my way and it sounds exciting, I'll do this. Okay, here's an example of I don't think very, I don't think things through. I'm up in Alaska, hadn't been up there for years. A girl who I used to compete against with, she's a badass. She became a mountaineer, a guide up in Alaska. I have tons of respect for her. Her name's Kristen Kramer. And um, I'm in the Santa Lodge, which is an infamous, famous place uh, up in Alaska. And I walk in, she's there, and she's telling me how she's planning a trip with a girlfriend to Denali. And they're going to go to Denali. And I look at her, I go, oh my god, I've always wanted to go there and like climb there. And honestly, I've never thought about it in my entire life. I called my boyfriend at the time, like, uh, who's my now my husband. I'm like, I'm going to go to Denali with Kristen Kramer. He's like, when do you hate snow camping? I mean, I hate, I'm not even a good camper when it's not snow. And he's like, and you hate the cold. And that's one of the coldest places. I'm like, isn't Everest colder? He's like, no. And so here, I just sounded exciting. I'm like, I don't like to miss out on things. And when it comes down to something and it could be off the wall, something I've never even heard of, I'll just act like I have. And because I don't want to miss out. I'm like, I don't know. I feel like it's worth trying something always once. And if it doesn't work out, you don't have to do it again. And um, so, yeah, I just, I was just someone when an opportunity came my way, like filming with Matchstick, if they invited me, I just said yes. I will figure it out later. Um, still to this day, things come my way. And I say yes, and I know I don't have to worry about it until the time comes. And when I'm in, now it's like go time, it's that day of, whatever I said yes to, <laughs> I'll get a panic, I get scared, but I'm like, I can get through this. Like, it's not the end of the world. I can get through this. So I, I usually just wait until the day to kind of figure it out and um, see what happens. So I'm very much spontaneous. <laughs> so what I think a couple refrains that we've heard tonight, um, work hard, say yes. Yeah? Definitely, yeah. yeah. And there's a third component that if it hasn't been said as explicitly as those first two, um, we also haven't heard you again be afraid of failing on any of these fronts, or at least I haven't heard you say that yet. No, I'm... I'm okay with failing. I don't know. Failing when it comes to trying something that seems really cool or exciting and I failed, like whatever, at least I attempted it. Um, I'm not afraid of making um, a fool of myself or doing something that people might laugh at. Um, I just don't, that's not a hindrance. I don't, that doesn't stop me. Like to have someone maybe laugh at a mistake. I mean, oh my God, I could tell you some can I tell a few funny stories? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, Pe Crested Butte, I don't know, you got Paradise Lift. It used to have a midway station. So once you get up to that crest, and you can get into cell service, um, there used to be a midway station. And it was a huge ramp that they built. So you, it's not like you were going to the snow level. You were on a ramp that you would have to ski down. And we were here for the U.S. Nationals in 1991 when I was ski racing. And... Um, I, back in the day, or still today maybe, it was really cool to ski with your suspenders down. And my girlfriend and I were skiing, and we were on the Paradise Lift, and right as we get to the ramp, she's like, let's get off here. 
I'm like, okay, she got off. I did not. My suspenders were hooked on the corner of the chair, and I'm about 15 feet up in the air now, flying like a really ratty Superman. And, um, and they stopped the chairlift, and I'm just swinging all limbs. And my suspenders, is when they make clothes really good, were just hanging on. And then I just stopped, and the guys behind me are like, look, that girl's on the U.S. ski team, because I'm all decked out U.S. ski team outfit. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, my God. So then I kick off my skis, and I throw down my poles, and I crawl up, and I unhook my suspenders, and I have to slither down and jump down. <laughs> but that's probably the fifth time I fell off a chairlift. <laughs> and um, so, I mean, I just, I think that's still one of the funniest, awesome moments of my life. I'm like, that was awesome, you know? Because you can't laugh at yourself or appreciate your, the dumb things you do. Um, you're going to struggle. Like, you just have to let that stuff go and find the humor in it. And so, yeah, I, I've failed a lot. And a lot of the failures are in Alaska where it's not funny, where you just get pummeled. I mean, I've been in avalanches. I've um, failed going off of, you know, big airs wrong. But I don't know. It, it's never bothered me. Do you think that's a natural disposition? Or do you think that that's something that you've... I don't know, like gotten better at over time or learned? I don't know. I think I was kind of klutzy when I was younger. <laughs> so I think I grew up kind of like being the dorky goofball person. I was very hyper. I was always kind of spastic. So people did laugh at me a lot because I would just do stupid stuff. But uh, um, so I don't know. I, I guess I just embrace that that's who I am. Because it's weird because if we go back to the school part, I mean, I didn't embarrass, I didn't even, I barely would talk, you know, in a classroom, because that area, I didn't like to embarrass myself, because it meant you weren't smart, or, you know, you lacked an IQ, or whatever it was, but in the sporting world, if you didn't try hard, and weren't willing to risk failing, you weren't going to get better, and so I definitely had no problem with, because that was my arena to shine, and I'm going to fail, but um, it never bothered me. As always, um, we want to give you a chance to ask some questions. Um, so be thinking of those questions. Um, and as always, if you don't have questions, we'll turn to our main man, Marcel Proust. Um, those are hard questions, so you better oh. hope that they're, yeah. So. Um, before we do this, or as you guys start um, thinking through what you might want to ask Wendy, I guess we'll all wrap with advice that you might have for a group of, let's say, undergraduates. Well, like I, can, like I already said earlier, I wasn't a goal writer. Um, you know, you learn that you're supposed to write where you want to be in five years, what job position do you want, how much money you're going to make. I can tell you right now, every contest that I ever did in um, whether it was ski racing or big mountains, I remember we'd go to a big mountain competition and it was like, what's the prize money if you win? And I'm like, I'm not here for that. I'm here for the pure joy of competing and challenging myself. And I'm with these group of people. Um, so I just, I didn't base anything off of other than fun factor. And I know that's not a great way to tell someone who wants to be a lawyer or doctor. I mean, I think that's a different mindset altogether. Um, I, the instant my heart 
started to just waffle or start to ache in pain of just like, I don't know where I am right now. I don't know who I am right now. I would tune into that and be like, what's wrong? Why am I not happy anymore? What is, what's triggering this? And I think I learned this from my ski team years when I got, when it became very isolating. Like you have to be your own advocate. I didn't have anyone to talk to. And um, you know, that's a whole nother conversation of trying to get out of depression or you know, um, the things that you can get into when you're down. So I was like, well, I'm not happy. I'm down. I'm done with this chapter. So like on the ski team, I was there. I was super depressed. I was sad that this chapter is coming to end. I've worked my whole life as a ski racer, but it's not happening for me anymore. And I quit. And um, I just, you know, and then when I got into the big mountain contest and I just felt full of life, I was like, well, I'm still young. Why can't, I, I need to do this for a while because I need to feel that happiness again. And then it just never stopped. But I, I'm still like that. I, you know, I have this gauge of, that sounds really exciting to go that way. And I'll go there. I don't know what's on the other side and I don't care. If you don't try, you'll never know what's on the other side. So I'm just one of those people who, you know, is the price right? That part doesn't matter to me, but I wanna know what's on the other side, regardless. Um, so I don't know, uh, you just have to take chances. You have to, even if you feel scared to make a decision, but it seems exciting to you, then you gotta go there. Don't let the fear stop you from um, being afraid of what's on the other side, because you never know. I don't know. So I, I, I just, I'm, some, I'm a believer that you have to get really in tune with yourself and you can be your own advocate of understanding your personality and your emotions to tell you what's a good trigger or, or a wrong trigger. Questions? Uh, this question is, as a sponsored athlete, you've had the opportunity to work with top brands in the industry. Can you tell us more about the relationship with those sponsors? Specifically, what are some of the elements that help create a good friendship? Um, one, just respecting that they're sponsoring you. You know, I've always appreciated um, anyone who is willing to help me out. And, um, you know, again, that's the support of identifying that they believe in me. And I would do anything. I mean, I used to write postcards to all my sponsors, like, hey, I'm in Europe, and thank you so much for sponsoring me and having me part of your brand. And, um, you know, and they'd be like, hey, Wendy, we want you to fly up to Whistler, and can you do this photo shoot? I'd be like, hell yeah, I'm, I'm on the next flight. I was always available to them. Um, yeah, I, I definitely appreciated that they saw value in me and I always wanted to upkeep that value and that's how this whole industry works. I, but I have to say the new way it works with Instagram and Facebook and I just, I've had a hard time with that whole side of the industry because you know, it used to just be match, when Matchstick or TGR or Warren Miller put out their film, that was your marketing that you just invested everything in for the year and that told the story not like the daily post or the weekly post with the monologue of about their life. I don't know, I, I, I just feel like it's almost too much nowadays. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I mean, I try to support the companies who support me and show the respect of what, they, what product they have. Yeah, and I'm still close to a lot of companies who I'm not even with anymore, you know? Uh, yeah, I think it's, you don't want to burn a bridge. I also learned that in the ski industry is a small industry and someone who you pissed off with one company might turn around and be with another company that you're now with and you have to work with that person. So um, it's a small world and you treat everyone with kindness and try to keep things to yourself if, and or go directly to the person involved, but uh, show your enthusiasm for the people who are trying to help you out, you know? What zone or feature on CB has always freaked you out? Oh, let me think. Um, well, I have to say there's definitely elements on the edge that I wish I would go for more, but you know, it, it's all about how it's filled in and everything. Um, where else? I mean, I feel like I've attempted most of the obstacles up there. Um, I'm trying to think of, um, well, I know, unfortunately, big hourglass isn't opened very much anymore, but I did get the privilege to ski in that venue and do contests. And that was one of the most challenging and scary, as much as it sounds like it's awesome to have that venue open for a contest, <laughs> it's rotten snow most of the time, you know, because they don't bomb it. They don't, it's not like people are skiing on it. And I just remember it, it was definitely one of the most terrifying moments because you don't know the area um, all that well. Um, I guess one thing, body bag. So I can do the lower era body bag. And 2004, I won the contest. I was actually pregnant with my son. 2005, and, and I aired out of body bag. But then 2005, Jen Ashton from Canada came down and she competed. And I did my same body bag, um, and she did the upper air. I didn't even know it really existed. I hadn't seen anyone do it. And she just launched it, and I was like, wow. And so I don't think, I think my years, I think I've gone beyond being able to want to attempt that, unless it's huge. But that, <laughs> that was awesome. I know all you boys can do it out there. But to me, that, that was a pretty cool line. So the Freeride World Tour just announced equal prize money for men and women in all categories. Uh -huh. And even though you said prize money wasn't much of an incentive for you, uh, I'd like to hear any of your thoughts on what impact that might have on the sport. Well, I, I think it's awesome. I mean, I always wish that was happening for me, but it, honestly, I also couldn't um, dwell on the fact that I wasn't getting equal pay. Um, I don't know, I'm not a very confrontational person, so um, I'm not a great female advocate for in, in terms of that, because I don't like to ruffle my, you know, beyond my aura, I guess. But uh, yeah, I think that would have been awesome, and I'm glad to hear that. It still wouldn't change what I would ever even plan to do in a contest or not. I mean, I always try to plan after that very first run um, in 96 in the extremes, when Shane helped me pick out that line, my lines were always about trying to ski something super technical, have an air. I wanted to challenge myself as a female skier, and it would frustrate me. Um, 
Sometimes the lines that would win would be the big Super G, you know, flash run that someone would do. Meanwhile, I was billy goading into some manky stuff and I would get hung up and, you know, I wouldn't win. But I was okay with that because I, I felt more reward out of challenging myself than to go pick the easy line. So I'd probably still try to pick the hard line and maybe end up not winning because I might get hung up on something, you know, that I was more empowered. It was more empowering to me to try to push something that I knew was a challenge and maybe wasn't capable of pulling off rather than trying to find a line that was super easy and didn't take much mental thought or courage. And I remember uh, filming a lot. We'd be on these peaks. I'd always be terrified. I'd ask myself, why do I even go on these film trips? I'm always terrified. I just want an easy day. One day, I want an easy day in Alaska. That was my dream. Someday not to be scared. Well, a bunch of us is a non-filming day. We got a, a ship together of friends, but the heli, the avalanche conditions were dangerous. So we had to ski kind of low angle, mellow stuff. And I was kind of relieved like, oh God, great. I get to have a mellow day. I was bored out of my mind. I was frustrated all day long. And so here I wanted that easy day, but I don't like easy. Like I, I thrive on challenges, which is why I consider Crested Butte to be one of the best mountains anywhere. I mean, we're small, but I don't want a big open bowl. I don't want to go to Vail and ski. I, I don't like having no obstacles in front of me. I like obstacles. I like <laughs> rocks. I like trees. I like to think about every turn. Um, I like steep pitches. And so that one experience heli skiing in a mellow terrain, I was just like, I'm not meant for mellow. I need challenge. And I, um, so that's why I think we all live in one of the places that has one of the best resorts or one, some of the best terrain. What is your favorite zone to ski in the world? In the world? Oh. Oh my God. Well, that's hard. One, okay, as you can already tell, I'm a people person. Like I have to have good people around. I mean, this is another thing. You could be in the biggest resort in the world, but if you don't know where to go, it sucks. Unless you're with the right people to show you the nooks and crannies, right? Like Crestview's small, but it has amazing stuff. You could be in teen France and not know where to go, and I could have a boring day. But... um one of the best, I think, trips I ever had with amazing camaraderie of people, awesome, awesome snow, like everything just lined up perfectly was Las Lanas, Argentina. It was insane. And the terrain there is mind blowing. It's one of those hidden treasures, but it's hard to get to like here, but even harder. Um, it, it's windy. So there's days, there's this one lift, the Marte lift, that you are hoping is going to be open because it gets you to all this awesome stuff. If it's windy, it won't open. Um, you know, it, they're not on it in terms of like ski patrol bombing things. There's a little safety factor also. But it's by far one of the most amazing venues that people don't know about, you know. Um. What is one of the funniest Shane McConkie stories you have? I know it's a little touchy subject, but anybody that's been impacted by Shane, I feel like has some kind of hilarious story. Would you 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll, I tell this one often because it's super funny. Well, in Portillo, so Chris Davenport started a camp called Skiing with the Superstars. And um, we, so now we're with Shane just in a teaching venue and we um, are in Portillo, Chile, and we have a sushi night in this one bar area. And um, we just finished up. We have some sushi that's still sitting around. And a group of people come in who are just lit up on red wine. Their lips are just fully red there, but we know them. And they sit kind of across from us. And Shane's like, watch this. And he packs up a huge wasabi ball, puts it underneath one of the fish, and then we pass it around. And so we're like, hey, do you guys want some sushi? And we pass the tray and it makes it around to them. And we all know which fish has the extra wasabi. <laughs> And so people are grabbing it and we're just watching it and they have no idea what's going on. The one guy, he grabs it and he starts eating it and he doesn't say anything to his friends, but you instantly just see him stop. He's no longer laughing, no longer engaging with people. He starts sweating, turning really red. You could see the panic in his head and we're all just sitting there like fully cracking up, but it was just hilarious. <laughs> and, and then, uh, you know, um, he also brought his bass um, shoot with him. And so he rigged me up and in Portillo, we could do this because in the U S everyone's too strict, but, uh, he rigged up the gear and he's like, Wendy, you're going to ski down and fly it. I'm like, Oh my God, I don't know what to do, but he put a radio on me. And so I start skiing down, you know, the chute comes up and now I'm flying. I've never been in a parachute <laughs> ever in my life. And so Shane has a magical way of talking you into just stupid stuff. So he's radioing, he's like, pull right, pull left. And I'm just floating over and there's people skiing down and my feet are about 20 feet above them and you know, just looking. And, and then I start coasting down, I get to the bottom of the lift and, and just land perfectly. But it was just so cool because Shane was just skiing right below me, radio up the whole way, like pull left, pull right, do this, do that. And um, he's someone who you would think you wouldn't want to trust in his hands, but um, he always pulled through like that. Yeah. So and I think she had, you had a question? Yeah. I was wondering since you said you're a people person and you say yes to everything, I'm the same way where I just like say yes to people and then I find that I book myself too much. So my question is like, how do you say yes to those exciting things and, but you also say no to the things in order to like take care of yourself too? That's a good one because I'm there right now. I'm, I'm, I've been running around nonstop. Um, and I think you start, I'm a lot older than you, um, you start to wean out. You start to tell which ones just maybe won't be quite as satisfying or, um, and okay, so I'm 48 and I'm just learning to kind of say no to things. It's taken me a long time. Um, because I am I'm just like, oh my God, someone wants me to do something with them or someone's going to invite me on this trip and do this and that. And um, I have started to kind of discover what, um, to just read it. My gauge is, uh, I have another funny story I could tell with Mike Douglas, but basically if I think I'm going to regret it and I can't go to sleep at night because it bothers me that I said no, that's something that um, then I have to jump on. If it doesn't keep me up all night and I don't really think about it much, then it was a good decision to pass. 
Um, and that, and that is also like, maybe you tell someone to give you a day or two to decide. And if it's something you can't stop thinking about, then you have to do it, you know? Um, so if you guys want to Google super mom, if you Google, go to Wendy Fisher, super mom, Mike Douglas did a Solomon Freesky TV episode on me. And, um, he takes me to this air that I, and I actually had one of my worst crashes. It's in the episode, one of my worst crashes of my career. And that was the first run I took. And now I, I kept filming cause uh, it was a story on me coming back after kids and stuff. He takes me this huge air and I'm standing on top of it. And I am just in my head. I'm just swearing at Mike Douglas. I'm like, oh my freaking God, I cannot believe he brought me here. But again, it was this thing that like, Mike thinks I can do this. And it was one of my bigger airs that I probably ever did. It's one that I didn't like because if you do an, I like airs that once you air, all the terrain that's in your way is gone. But this one just jutted out, jutted out. And even towards the end, it seemed like it grew bigger. And so I had to make sure I cleared it all. I'm like, oh my God, I have to clear all that. And what if I, my feet hit the rocks towards the end and all the stuff's going in my head. He starts calling me, he sees me hesitating. He just starts calling me every horrible name that you can imagine, which I know offends some women, but to me, I knew what he was doing. And I said that, I was like, Mike, I know what you're trying to do. He's calling me the worst lame names ever. And I'm like, I know what you're trying to do and it's not gonna work. And then I just stood there and he was quiet for a while. And then he said, just think how happy you'll be. And I was like, oh my God. And that, that was the trigger. I'm like, if I walk away from this, I'm gonna have a nightmares for weeks, months, years. It probably was out of the blue come into my head that I walked away from that air and I would regret it. So I was like, well, I already ate shit once today and it's nothing but powder down there. What horrible thing. This is also what I gauged when I did my contest. I would look at an air and be like, will I die? I don't think I'll die, but I might break a leg and I might break an arm. I've never broken anything. So I still, the only things I've ever broken are my thumbs and those were my ski racing days. So I looked at terrain and I say, will I break an arm? Could I break a leg? Yeah, sure. Who hasn't broken something? You know, that happens to a lot of people. So when Mike pulled that, he's like, just think how happy you'll be that that is me. Like I, if I walk away from this, I'm going to regret it. And it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt my heart. I'm going to have like tons of anxiety and angst that I walked away and I did it and I stuck it. And I'm like, Oh my God, thank God I did that. So, um, that's, you know, I knew if I walked away from that air, I would be, it would be challenging more in the long run. Um, and if I fell, I fell, whatever. So, um, I don't know. So you just gotta sleep on it. And I think as you get more into it with all these, these opportunities, you're going to figure out which ones are just a waste of time and not that exciting to you. Yeah. But yeah, you can't spread yourself too thin where it's just not fun anymore. Where is skiing? Um, where are you at with skiing now? Is it still a career for you? How, is, how has it evolved and what is the phase of skiing for you right now? Um, so yeah, I, you know, if someone asked me to be a part of a movie, I would, cause I'm a sucker like that. <laughs> you know, if Warren Miller, like I almost was in the Warren Miller movie last year, but the dates didn't work out. But I'm like, yeah, I'll totally go. Um, 
But, uh, you know, and um, like I was just in Aspen and went out with a photographer for Strafe to try to get some photos that I could maybe post here and there and just to have. But I mostly teach. Uh, I teach now for Vail or Crested Butte, but I was um, the, a non-employee you could teach for the last 12 years on Crested Butte. I travel around and ski with clients. I'm gonna go to Telluride and I ski with the group and I'm gonna give a talk. Then I'm flying to Europe and I'm skiing with Franz Weber and Franz Klammer and skiing with a corporate group. So I still try to make skiing my career, but I'm also trying to figure out how to phase out of just doing it for fun. Um, but I love teaching people too. Like I love now that I got most of the skiing out of the way for me and I am ready to help others get better. I do love skiing with intermediate skiers and, and even expert, but um, you get more reward when you're teaching someone who has lack of confidence, doesn't believe in themselves, and you start getting them down harder runs or different terrain. So um, I'm still doing that. And I'm with my kids a lot, skiing with them. So I wouldn't say I'm not chasing the movie lifestyle anymore. I'm not chasing the photo shoots to be a part of different magazines and stuff, because one is just expensive. You're basically paying your way now, or I would be. And I have a family, but does that hold me back from skiing the way I want to ski? No. Like, in, you guys find me in Crested Butte, and I get um, egged on to go hit something, <laughs> I'm totally willing to do that. You know, actually, I just skied with my son and a bunch of kids. They had a day off from skiing in Aspen um, races, and they're hitting airs, and I follow them. <laughs> uh, that's my skiing style. And that is also, just to get back to kids, is... Um, you know, now that I'm older and I'm with other moms or husbands who talk about their wives, and a lot of them say, oh, my wife used to do this and she used to do that, but then she had kids and now she holds back. And my whole thing is like, screw that. I want my kids to know me. And I don't want them to hear about what I used to do or how I used to be. I feel like I'm dead. So I ski with my kids and I still want to charge and let them see the, uh, the type of skier and personality I am, not to be the one that sits on the sidelines because I'm too old or I have kids now and I need to be safe. Um, and that's the whole thing about the super mom thing too. Right before I eat it really bad, Mike Douglas asked me, he's like, what about the kids? And that upset a lot of people. They, you know, wrote in saying, how could you ask that question? I, I knew it was coming. I'm like, that's part of the deal. You know, people rip on Shane for doing what he did and he had a kid. It, it's, that's our lifestyle, you know? And, um, and I'm not saying I'm gonna risk my life, but um, you still gotta live. And, and I want my kids to see me living to the fullest, not being afraid of life. Um, one of the things I think is so interesting about you and your story and your experience is I really kind of get the sense that every single one of us in this room could pick up on a different element of your story and something you've said, and we might all end up with different takeaways. And I, I think that's really interesting. I think for me, um, the strength of your kind of internal compass is kind of one of the most interesting takeaways for me that you, there's nothing about your story where it felt like 
someone said you couldn't do this, and so that was the end of that. I mean, there was just this pushing forward, but it was mostly governed by like, is that interesting? Will it make me happy? If I don't do that, will I live with regret? And those are, those are interesting ways to make very basic day-to-day -day decisions, um, and it has nothing to do with salary, and it has nothing to do with the amount of prize money and the rest. And I think that there are really important, interesting things for um, us to think about in our own lives and whether we might want to have our own internal compass kind of calibrated the way you've, you have in your life. And uh, so for that, I'm really thankful that you would come here and share that story and that experience. And uh, I have no doubt that the next week and next month and next year are gonna kind of operate for you exactly in that same way as, they've, as you've been operating. And, and I'm, for one, very happy about that. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for coming, yeah. Wendy. And uh, yeah, thanks for sharing, again, your, your remarkable story. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for putting up listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, everybody. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you are enjoying these conversations, we'd invite you to subscribe to the Blister Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a nice little rating or review in iTunes and be sure to tell your friends about the show. Of course, I want to say thanks to Wendy for the conversation. Thanks to everyone who came out to Western. And thanks also to everyone who, once again, asked such good questions. Finally, I want to say thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. Now, please go take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.